0: All right, well, beautiful singing, and uh, welcome to Red Village Church. have not met you, I'm Aaron, and I'm uh, pastor here, and uh, we're glad you're with us today. I know there's a, a lot of folks out today. Uh, we have some sickness kind of running through the church. A good portion of our college students are on a retreat, and so um, I'm glad that uh, you're here. Uh, so if you have a Bible with you, we am going to open up to First Samuel, First Samuel chapter 10. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there are some Bibles on the pews. I'm going to turn to page 144. So this morning, I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 6 for us, from 1 Samuel 31, and then I'm going to pray, ask for the Lord's blessing on our time, and then we will get to work. So please follow along with me as I read 1 Samuel uh, 31, verses 1 through 6. So this is what the Word says. So now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Geboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan, Abadad, Malachi, Malachi, Shua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. His armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it, and when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell, also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. Okay, so that's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. So thanks for uh, your word. And I thank you for your Holy Spirit who opens up your word. Uh, to speak to us, even through preaching, that you speak. And uh, Lord, that is our heart's desire this morning, that through your word, through your preached word, that you indeed would speak. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would do a great work here in our hearts for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Okay, so this morning as we gather together at Red Village Church, we actually come to the final sermon on our study of the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel which is a study that we've actually been in for about a year and a half as we study the events of this book, for Samuel, that cover between like 90 to 100 years' worth of time. And because is our final sermon, I thought it would be appropriate to back up uh, to the beginning of our study just to give a quick fly-by review of where we have been. So to start, just by way of reminder, so the events of First Samuel uh, started around like 1100 or so B.C., so not too far off from where the book of Judges ended, which was a period of time for God's people that was not a great time And that was not a great time because throughout the book of Judges, we read how God's people were basically doing what was right in their own eyes, rather than doing that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. And that that is never a good thing. In fact, that is a hopeless thing. And so from this this is the context of which this book was written, right? A hopeless time for God's people. And as 1 Samuel started to capture some of that hopelessness, we read the story of a young woman named Hannah, who was barren, who had no children. Which, culturally speaking, for that time, that was a hopeless place, hopeless situation for Hannah to be in. Yet, even though Hannah was in this hopeless situation, Hannah put her hope in the Lord. And she set her heart to trust the Lord, doing so in ways where she was faithfully worshipping the Lord at the temple. And she would pray to the Lord, trusting that he is the one who is able to do all things. As you may remember from our study, as Hannah prayed to the Lord, she did so by asking the Lord for a son. By giving the Lord a vow that if he indeed gave her a son, that she vowed that she would give the child back to God in unique service of him. A Nazarite vow. Well, in our study, the God of all hope met Hannah in her hopeless state. God heard her prayer, and in time the Lord answered her prayer as Hannah became with child. A child that she would name Samuel, which is a name that carries the meaning like the offspring of God. So really from the start of 1 Samuel, even though there's hopelessness all around, we start to see glimmers of hope. In our study, we right read at the appropriate time, Hannah kept her vow to the Lord, and she took Samuel to the temple, where she dedicated him to, the, to, uh, to God. And as Samuel became uh, trained to become a priest to the Lord. It was there in our study, we learned that Samuel received his training from a man named Eli, who was the high priest at the time. So if you can remember all the way back to him, Eli was kind of a complicated figure, in that he seemed to be pretty caring, fairly humble, he did seem to show like some trust in the Lord and his word. Yet, at the same time, Eli was a very absent father. Uh, Eli had two sons who also were priests who were making a complete mockery of the worship of God at the temple. Yet, absent Eli seemed to be completely aloof to what was going on. While Eli was aloof to what was going on, the Lord certainly was not. So we read that how God brought judgment on Eli and his sons, which had a rippling effect that hurt the rest of God's people which we saw played out by the ark of God being captured by the enemies of God, the Philistines, which was a hopeless situation for God's people. And to capture how hopeless of a time that was, you may remember how one of the daughters of Eli died while giving birth to a son. But before she died, she gave her newborn son the name Ichabod, which is a name that means the glory has departed, which is a name that captured how God's people felt when the ark of God was taken from them that they hopelessly felt that God had left them. However, even though Eli and his sons were faithless and for Samuel, God continued to be faithful, and he gave hope to his people, not only by bringing the ark back into the land by defeating the uh, Philistines, which maybe you remember how he did through a plague of tumors, but the Lord also put Samuel over the people, where Samuel would serve God's people as the great prophet and priest who would speak God's word, which for a time spilled much hope into God's people in 1 Samuel because the blessings of God was now overflowing on them and God's people were able to live at peace in the land. However, despite the blessings of God, despite the peace of God filling the land, God's people put themselves back into a hopeless situation, which they did by deciding that they did not want God to rule over them as king. Rather, they desired to be like all the nations around them and have an earthly ruler rule over them, a king who would mirror their own heart, which in many ways they wanted to hopelessly go back to the time of the judges. They wanted to do what was right in their own eyes. In our study, even though Samuel warned God's people that the desire for a king after their own heart would come back to haunt them, the people refused to listen to Samuel. They continued to demand that they would get a king that they wanted which led the Lord, giving the people over to their own desires. And a man named Saul was appointed to be their king. Now, as you may remember, as Saul started out his reign, he actually started out pretty good, which will actually come back uh, in our play, in our text today. So in his good start, Saul was even used by the Lord to bring about like renewal to the kingdom. However, shortly into his reign, Saul became more and more proud, more and more concerned about his power and control, which caused him to spiral out of control. In our study, the first big indication where Saul was tragically headed was when he grew impatient, where he rejected clear teaching of Scripture, where he offered up an unlawful sacrifice, which Saul did with the hopes of manipulating the Lord. And he did that because he was afraid that the people under his care were starting to abandon him and lose confidence in him. But as we know, we cannot manipulate God. That's a hopeless desire, a hopeless endeavor. Our Lord will not be manipulated, and because Saul broke this clear teaching of Scripture, the judgment of God started to fall on Saul. And it fell on him in ways that God rejected Saul and his lineage from being the king, which will also come back in our play, in our text today. And from God rejecting Saul, and from our text um, then, all the way on to our text today, we've just seen Saul, you know, all the different ways he's spiraled out of control how he hopelessly fell into one sinful failure after another, after another, after another. It's all because Saul was just unwilling to repent, unwilling to trust in the Lord and turn from his obsessive desires for uh, power and control as king. However, even though God rejected the people's king, Saul, in accordance with the Lord's grace and kindness and his eternal plan, God once again brought hope back to his people. It was in 1 Samuel. He read that the Lord appointed a new man to be king, who, in time to replace Saul, and this man would come from God's own heart, a man named David, who, in many ways, was an unlikely character to be chosen by God to be king. So, David was young, small, overlooked, a lowly shepherd. Yet, it was through this unlikely character, David, that is how God would bring about hope. And one of the things that I mentioned last week throughout much of 1 Samuel, there's been this ongoing comparison between the hopeless King Saul, the people's king. And then the king who God would appoint, the one who would bring hope, David. Even though David was a far from perfect character overall in 1 Samuel, he did prove to be a character of faith, who at times had a real aim and conduct in life that is worth emulating. As David was used by the Lord in in ways to care for his people, which was so much of our text last week, which is a text we uh, looked at one last time of David in 1 Samuel. Or David proved in our text last week to be the man after God's own heart by reflecting the heart of God. You may remember last week how David trusted God's word, how he acted in wisdom, how he courageously defeated the evil Amalekites who had just captured the wives, the sons and daughters of David and his men. In our passage last week, not only did David rescue these people, we read uh, read how kind and gracious he was towards others, including a group of 200 of his men and people located all over Judah. As Sir David has mentioned, God gave hope. But now today, as we gather together, we close out this study with one final look at Saul, the man after the people's heart. And we come to the tragic end of his life, which is a life throughout 1 Samuel is really an ongoing warning to us, a warning of the consequences that come with rejecting the Lord and his word, the consequences that come when we live for self. That, that is a hopeless life when we live for ourselves. So, with that as an intro for the last time, look back with me at first Samuel uh, chapter 31, starting verse 1. So you take your eyes there, we see that the Philistines and Israel are fighting and Israel are fighting against each other. And for us, this information helps us see that time progressed from the last time we saw Saul in chapter 28. So if you remember, remember back, chapter 28, this is where Saul was seeking the counsel of a median, uh, which demonstrated how hopeless of a character Saul had become. And as you remember, Saul sought the counsel of a median because the massive the Philistine army was preparing to battle against Israel. So now in our text today, the preparation of that battle was over. And we see the fighting had now begun. As these two rival nations once again engaged in war with each other in 1 Samuel. And as the war was happening, we see that the massive Philistine army was having great success in the battle. As we see in the text, that they had Israel on the run. Where Israel was now fleeing to Mount Gilboa. Now, let me point out here in chapter 28, we did read that Saul and his men were camped out in Gilboa. So this here, fleeing to Mount Gilboa in our text in verse 1, I think he's simply referring to the men, left the camp at the foot of the mountain, We're now fleeing up the mountain with the hopes of escaping. Verse 2. Even though the Philistines were able to strike dead a significant portion of Israel's army, even though they were able to successfully scatter Israel's army by putting them on the run, we see the Philistines were not satisfied. they, They wanted more here. So we read that they continued pursuit. And they continued to pursue Saul, or Israel until they are able to catch up with King Saul. And they were able to corner Saul and his military party that he had with them. And corner him in ways that they now started to overtake Saul and his um, man, band of men who are with him. And as the Philistines overtook Saul, they put them in this incredibly hopeless situation. In this hopeless situation, we see the Philistines were able to break through. They were able to give to Saul's sons including his son Jonathan, who we actually read about a few times in our study for Samuel. So this is David's like best friend who's presented in 1 Samuel as a positive character. So the Philistines were able to get to Saul's sons, including Jonathan, and he got to them and he killed them, seemingly right there on the spot. But for the Philistines, even that was not enough to satisfy them. So we see in verse 3, a hard-pressed battle waged between the Philistines and those who were with Saul. And this hard-pressed battle pressed on we see the arrows are being shot, presumably back and forth between east side. And as we read in our text, at least one of the arrows that's fired by the Philistines hit its intended target, and it badly wounded Saul. And as Saul was hit with this arrow, Saul understood like he was in like bad shape, where I'm sure he probably understood that eventually this wound from this arrow would take his life. And even more than that, Saul certainly understood that he's in such bad shape that he was not able to carry on from there. To get away from the Philistines, where he might die in peace. So for Saul, it was just a matter of time before the Philistines would break through. Whatever men remained who were trying to protect Saul, where if he had not died by that time, the Philistines certainly would finish him off. So in the text, as an attempt to save a bit of face, to not give the Philistines satisfaction of watching him die, as well as satisfaction in engaging in the cultural practice of like of mutilating his body before he died. You see, in verse 4, Saul mustered up some of his remaining strength. And in his remaining strength, he calls over to his armor-bearer to give his armor-bearer his dying wishes, which in the text was a wish that this trusted armor-bearer would take out his sword and thrust it into Saul's dying body and do so quickly, in the text, lest the uncircumcised Philistines come through and thrust Saul through and mistreat him. However, as the armor-bearer heard this dying request from Saul, the armor-bearer could not meet this request. The text tells that he was like overcome with fear. Just the fear, the thought of taking the anointed king, Saul's life, from him. Now this week, I kind of wondered if the armor-bearer maybe was present in chapter 24 and 26. Remember how David could have taken Saul's life, but he didn't? How David felt it was not right to strike down the anointed one? You know, it's hard to know why the armor bearer was so overcome with fear here. All we know that he was in fear and he was not moving. He, he was not going to take Saul's life from him. There from the text, Saul took it upon himself to take his own life. Which is such a sad, tragic, hopeless end to his life. The text tells us Saul was able to get whatever else remaining strength that he had and he was able to fall on his sword, an act that killed him. He said again. This is is a tragic, hopeless end for the king of Israel. Verse 5, you take your eyes there. As the fearful armor-bearer watched Saul take his life, he was overcome with even more fear. So we read in the text that the armor-bearer did likewise. And like Saul, this man fell on his sword and died. Another tragic, hopeless end of life. Verse 6 is almost like the epitaph of this tragic scene. We read that thus Saul died, his three sons died, the armor bearer died, all of his men who were with him at the end, they all died. All dying together on the same day. I keep saying, it. This, this is a tragic end. This, this is a hopeless epitaph here. Keep going, verse 7. As a men in Israel who were on the other side of the valley, as well as those who were beyond the Jordan, as they could start to see the men of Israel start to flee from the Philistines, it became clear to them that you know, the route is on, that the Philistines were like, overtaking the entire army of Israel. And it became clear that as the route was on, that they, you know, they were in trouble. And as this tragic uh, scene was playing out, as people were fleeing, we see that the news of what happened to Saul and his sons also started to make its way around. And this put the people of Israel into a panic. Filled with fear. So likewise, they started to flee. To get out before it was too late. In the text, they left with such hate, such urgency, that they left their cities behind. And I presume everything in their cities. Outside, maybe a few personal items they could easily grab on their way out. And as the cities in the area were being abandoned, becoming instant ghost towns. We see they didn't stay empty for long. It was in the text. The homes quickly became occupied by Philistine soldiers who started to live in these homes you know, as, a, as a spoil of war. Now, one does not need a lot of insight to recognize like, this is a dark, sad, scary time for God's people. Let me think about this. Their king and his heirs just died. Their army is on the run. They themselves are now on the run On the run, they had to leave everything they had in order to escape with their lives. And now their hated enemies are starting to fill the land to live in their homes. An incredibly dark time. So tragic. Once again, so hopeless. Verse 8. Then to put some salt in the wounds to add to the discouragement that no doubt God's people were feeling. We see that the next day that when the Philistines came to the strip of slain bodies, which no doubt were dead bodies scattered all over Mount Gilboa, we see the Philistines found the one body they were really hoping to find, Saul's. And not only did they find Saul's dead body, but they also found the dead body of his three sons, which I'm sure brought these Philistines much delight. And as they found the dead bodies, even though they could not mutilate the bodies when there was still life in them, which was Saul's fear, which in part led to him taking his own life, in verse 9, as they found the bodies dead, it didn't stop the Philistines from like mutilating the bodies. Because in the text we read that they cut off the head of Saul. Uh, they stripped him of armor. Which here you kind of wonder, maybe this is a little bit of a payback the Philistines were given Israel for what happened to their giant hero Goliath. Remember that? How he had the head, his head cut off, and his armor taken by David after David struck him down uh, with a stone in the valley. In our text, as they cut off the head of Saul, as they stripped him, presumably naked, by taking his armor, we see that they sent messengers all over the land of Philistines you know, to gloat. And they wanted the people to know that they had good news for them. Right? They had good news of how successful they have been in this battle against Israel. So in the text, the messengers went all over the land right, on this gloating tour. And we see that they went to the house of their idols to gloat, I'm sure to pay tribute to their gods who they credited to this victory. We also see in the text, they went to like, all the people all over declaring good news, you know, where they could gloat and brag that Saul, God's anointed, was dead, and they killed him. Verse 10, as the message went all over the land, we read, as they went to the house of the idols, and particularly the temple of Erishath, we see that's where they put the armor of Saul, which is here. This is a similar action to what the Philistines did back in chapter 5, after they captured the Ark of God. Remember how they placed it in the temple of their god Dagon, which is mentioned as symbolic that the Philistine god had defeated the god of Israel. By the way, in chapter 10 of 1 Chronicles, at least for a time, Saul's head was actually placed in Dagon's temple. In our text, we see that the rest of Saul's dead, naked body was taken to Bethshon, where the body of Saul was accompanied by the body of his sons. And the dead, naked bodies, as they writhed in the scene, we see they were fastened to a wall, which most likely was like the outer city wall, so that others entered into the city. They could further observe and further gloat that they killed Saul. And this, this is such salt in the wounds for God's people. I mean, for God's people, this is about as bad as it could be. I mean, go back again. Their king, Saul, was dead. His sons were dead. Much of their army was dead, defeated. Whatever army they had left was on the run, which put so many of them on the run where their homes were abandoned and occupied by the hated Philistines. And now here, through this, the Philistines are like mocking the God of Israel. For God's people in this time, I mean, they had to start to question, where is God in any of this? You know, I'm sure they had to tempt, be tempted to feel that God had left them, that he had forsaken them. And I say, if we continue on the storyline here in 1 Samuel into 2 Samuel, it appears like it's a good, good five to ten years after this scene, five to ten years into David's reign as king, before they could eventually get their revenge and defeat the Philistines. Five to ten years. I mean, that's a long time. I mean, just back up in your own minds to think, like, what were you doing five or ten years ago? Think how much has happened in that window. You know, for God's people, that's a long time from where this scene ends and in the storyline of 2 Samuel, where not a lot of great things are going on for them. They they had to feel hopeless. To say it again, they had to be tempted to think, where is God in any of this? Well, for us, as we finish off this text this sermon series, we finish off by actually seeing a real evidence of God's grace that was there in the midst of the hopelessness. An evidence of grace that proved that God, the God of hope, had not left his people. Back with me, starting in verse 11. We read that as the Philistines were gloating and mocking Saul, ultimately mocking and gloating over the Lord, you see, that word got back to the inhabitants of Gabesh gilead of what was happening with Saul's body. And the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead were made aware how the Philistines were mistreating the body of Saul. We see in verse 12 that some righteous anger now started to rise up among the valiant men of the area. And in their righteous anger, in an act of great courage, we see that at night these men traveled 10 to 15 miles to Bethshan, where Saul's uh, body was hanging which was a risky, dangerous journey from the Goan. Dangerous because, one, they're like heading right into the teeth where the Philistines were. But two, doing so at night would have provided some cover, sure. But at night would have made them vulnerable to the attack of various animals that were in the region. In our text As the valiant, courageous men made their trip, we see eventually they did reach Bashan. And as they reached Bashan, we see they went to where the bodies of Saul and his sons were hanging from the wall. And as they found the dead mutilated bodies, we see that they took the bodies down. And they proceeded to carry the bodies back the 10 to 15 mile dangerous journey back to Jabesh. And by the way, just think, perhaps this trip home would have been even more dangerous. I mean, think about all the various animals of prey from miles around, who no doubt would have been smelled dead bodies. Keep going. As the men made their way home, as they completed the dangerous round trip, We see they took and they burned the bodies of Saul and his sons, which was not a complete incineration of the bodies, but just enough to burn off the remaining flesh. So in verse 13 of our text, they could take out the bones of these men and give them a proper burial, where they buried the bones under a tamarash tree in Jabesh. Then for the next couple days, or several days, they proceeded to mourn through fasting. Now, let me just point out a few things of interest here. So just first, as it relates to the tree, the tamarask tree. So it's not fully certain of the symbolism here, but it does seem to, that this type of tree was like symbolic for royalty. So if you actually were back up in our study to chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, so Saul was conducting kingly business under a tamarask tree. Okay. Second, perhaps most interesting here, is just the backstory of Jabesh Gilead, which, by the way, everyone's favorite lung doctor, Right, Jay Tuck, he was rightfully geeking out over this at the beginning of this week, this year. Okay, so here's the backstory. So, this actually isn't the first time we read something about Jabesh Gilead in 1 Samuel. So, if you actually wanted a page back in your Bibles to chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, we actually read about them there. So, in chapter 11, the Amorites, who also were enemies of Israel, they actually just besieged this town. And as the Amorites took control of Jabesh Gilead, they decided they wanted to gloat over their accomplishment. By also mutilating bodies. So they gave the men of Jabesh Gilead an option to sign a treaty which included the requirement of the treaty that the men would gouge out their right eyes. Which not only disgraced these men, but chapter 11 even tells us that this would bring disgrace over all of Israel. Well, as these treaties of or conditions of treaties were given, Jabesh Gilead was then given seven days to consider their options... And we were even given time to see if anyone in Israel would come by their side to defend their cause. So in chapter 11, as word started to spread about the land, the terms of this treaty, this information made its way to Israel's new king, Saul, who was mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, actually starts out pretty good. And chapter 11 is actually one of the reasons why. Because as Saul heard this information about this treaty, you know, this gouging out of their eyes, Saul was like cut to the heart. And the Spirit of God powerfully rushes on Saul to empower Saul, which allowed Saul to like, rally the rest of Israel, to come together as one, to become a massive army, where Saul would then lead Israel into Jabesh-Gilead, where Saul and his troops would then slaughter the Amorites and defend Jabesh-Gilead from this great shame and embarrassment. Which, by the way, in chapter 1, led God's people to overwhelmingly give their support to Saul through great celebration. Okay, so now if you fast forward from chapter 11 to today, no doubt some of these valiant men, chapter 12 of our text, were men who had their eyes spared by Saul. And it appears that they never forgot what Saul did for them, how he honored their lives by saving them from some such great shame and disgrace. So us here? As 1 Samuel ends, it ends with these men deciding it was right for them who now, in a sense, seek to pay Saul back by risking their lives so they could spare Saul and his sons great shame and disgrace by giving Saul and his sons a proper burial. By the way, as you keep reading the storyline into 2 Samuel, shortly after David was anointed to be king of Judah, like he's actually made aware of what the men of Jabesh Gilead did for Saul, and in one of his first acts as king, So Saul actually, or David actually declared these words about these men. He said, Men of Jabesh Gilead, may you be blessed by the Lord. This is how you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Friends, even though there's so much hopelessness here in chapter 31, at the end of the chapter, at the end of 1 Samuel, through these men, we see the evidence of God's grace. We see the evidence that God did not leave nor forsake his people, but he was at work through his people to give hope. For us, that ends our text. That ends our look at for Samuel. Now how I want to finish off our time here, this series, is just what I've been circling about around this entire sermon today. Hope. And how I want to do this, at first I want to just talk about hopelessness. Which again, this is actually was like was the historical setting of 1st Samuel was written. You know, a hopeless time for God's people, everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. Hopelessness was how this book starts out with a woman named Hannah, who was barren, which made her culturally hopeless. Hopelessness really does run throughout the book. Awful priest, captured Ark, Ichabod, King Saul who for much of his reign made life hopelessly miserable, not just for himself, but for the people under his care, which he did all the way to his death in this hopeless passage we just looked at. So so first, I do want to give us some thoughts to conclude just as it relates to hopelessness. But then, after working through hopelessness, I wanted to finish off the sermon series by looking at hope, which is also running through 1 Samuel. This is such a book of hope. Hope that starts with God giving Hannah a baby named Samuel. Hope, how God fought for his people time and time again. Hope that God gave to his people David, a king after his own heart. Hope in our text today that God raised up valiant men to act in courage, to leave us with such hope. The evidence that God's grace was still with his people. But before we get there, as mentioned, let me first talk about hopelessness. And how I want to do that is just simply placing hopelessness under the banner of living for self. Friends, living for self, that's, that's hopeless. It really is. That was the issue of judges. Everyone hopelessly doing what was right in their own eyes. Throughout 1 Samuel, all the issues we looked at, all the hopeless situations, that's what it was. People living for themselves, including hopeless Saul, Was so self centered, who obsessively lived for himself, which, by the way, is such a warning for us in our life. Saul's self centered gaze, gaze that hopelessly kept growing and growing, where Saul hopelessly rejected more and more of God's good word, where Saul hopelessly became more and more power hungry, more and more controlling, all of which led to his tragic end of life, this hopeless and that we see in our text today. Where Saul's living for self, all it did was led him to death. And not just himself, but led his sons to death. So many of his uh, men to death, men that he was entrusted to care for and protect. It led to people having to flee their homes. His hopeless living for Saul put Israel in utter chaos, utter hopelessness. Now for us, as we live for self, the magnitude of hopelessness will probably not be that, uh, the same as it was for Saul. But the properties will look the same. Friends, when we live for self, in the end, it's always a rejection of God, his word. When we live for self, it's always a rejection of like God's power, his control over our lives, which is at the heart of all sin. And sin always leads to Death. Not only does it lead us to death, often sin leaves some type of path of destruction that affects others as well. Just like it did for Saul. And often this path of destruction affects those that are closest to us. Friends, I do think that one of the biggest takeaways that we have from 1 Samuel, particularly with the character of Saul, just how hopeless it is to live for self. I keep saying for Saul, this living for self, it just kept building and building. And building all because he gets unwilling to stop living for self and repent and churn and live for God. So for us here this morning, as you hear this warning of Saul's life, as reminded one last time in our study of first Samuel, how hopeless it is to live for self. How living for self leads to misery and death. This morning, as we close, if you see yourself hopelessly living for self. Please hear the warning. Please hear and see the warning of Saul and repent. Churn from sin and churn to God, who is the God of hope. So, the second part, of how I want to end this time here in this sermon series, is simply by looking to the God of all hope. At least for me, this truth, the hope found in the Lord, this, this is there all the way throughout the book. And this is one of the most important takeaways that we are to grab hold of. Now, I mentioned, some of the places where we see God providing hope and hope in situations. So, rather than going through those, again, let me just finish off by sharing the hope of God in the immediate context of the passage we looked at today. So, I have a handful of things for us. So, friends, first, have hope. Why? Have hope because God will stay true to His word. In our text, how did God stay true to His word? Well, He made it clear to Saul what was going to happen if Saul continued to fall into sin, that God would remove him and his lineage from the kingdom of Israel and to give, it after, to give it to a king after his own heart. In addition, God's word throughout, like he promises that he'll keep a faithful remnant to himself, even in the darkest of times, which I think the men of Jabesh Gilead pictured, a remnant who stayed true to God. Right? His word tells us that. For us, friends, have hope. God will stay true to his word. He always does. God does not lie. We can find such hope in that. Even everything around us feels hopeless. Have hope. God will stay true to his word. He will make good on his promises that he's given to us. Second, have hope. God will bring about justice. And really, we do all want justice to come. I'm thinking, well, this is why we spend so much time like being frustrated, complaining, being discouraged. We just feel like things are just unjust. We want justice to come. In our text, justice came for Saul. Saul got what he justly deserved. Friends, have hope. God will make things right. He is a just God. Now, I do have to say here before we move on that while we all want justice to come to the world around us, we do need to be mindful that justice will also come for us as well. And when left to ourselves, we all are under the justice of God. I'm going to give you some good news on that front in just a second. But no, if you are living for self, listen, you are under the just judgment of God. And it's hopeless to think that somehow you can wake or work your way out of it. It is hopeless to think that you can justify yourselves. You can't. But I do have some good news for you in just a second here. Third, have hope. Why? Have hope because God works through his people. It's often through his people. That's where God shows the evidence of his grace to us in our lives. This is one of the many reasons why we hope everyone is connecting, living in community. We might be a mutual encouragement to one another, that we be a grace in each other's lives, used by the Lord to encourage one another in ways that we're giving hope. As mentioned, this is a hopeless story, chapter 31. Yet God provided hope. And how did he do it? He did it through the men of Jabesh Gilead, who acted with valiant courage, who risked it all to honor Bless Saul and his sons. And Red Village, may that be true of us as well. That for the glory of the Lord, we would be valiant. We would be courageous. That we would be used by the Lord with hope to be ministers of grace. To give each other hope. Hope in the Lord. And by the way, on that front, there's no doubt that there's some who walked in here this morning feeling a bit hopeless. Who could maybe use someone just like you to minister grace and hope to them. Last one. This is the good news here. Fourth, have hope. God has a king. Now, in the immediate context of 1 Samuel, we know that king was David, the man after God's own heart. But as mentioned, as great as David was, he was far from perfect. However, have hope. In the goodness of God, according to his eternal plan, in the right time, God did send a king A king who is tempted in every way which we have been tempted, yet without sin. A perfect king, perfect in every way, perfect who came to keep and fulfill God's word. Who, like Saul, died for sin. Although unlike Saul, who died for his own sin, this king, he died for the sins of his people. Where, like Saul, this king died as a part of God's justice. Where this king bore the wrath of God in the place of his people, So that through him, his people could be justified. They could be forgiven as they put their faith in him. Where this king, like Saul, was also high and lifted up outside of a city wall. As his body hung as a spectacle, where evil men gloated. Although this king's body did not hang on a wall, this king's body hung on a cross. Which is where this king would die. Where, like Saul... This king had a valiant and courageous man come for his body so that this valiant man could give this king who had died a proper burial as this valiant man took the dead body of this king and laid it in a tomb where he wrapped him in cloths. But friends, unlike Saul, this king's body did not stay in the tomb because on the third day to fulfill the scriptures, this man, the great God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, he rose again from the dead to give us such good news, which is good news that any and all who confess and churn from sin, who stop living for self but by faith live for him, they would have real hope, good news, real hope. Because unlike Saul, who brought forth such misery and death to his people, this king, King Jesus, provides blessings and joy and peace to his people. Eternal life to his people. And this king, King Jesus, promises that one day he will come back for us. And he will take us to an eternal home. A home that we ourselves will dwell in. We will dwell in there forever and ever. In a kingdom that will have no end. So friends, have hope. Have hope. No matter how hopeless life might feel to you. Because there is good news. God has a king. A good king. His own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The king who will make things right. The king who promises that he will never leave us nor forsake us. A king who's even given us his spirit to dwell inside our hearts. But for us, dear friends, as we close out this series, may we close it out with hope. Real hope. And as we live in this hope, as we wait for our king to return, may we be valiant, bold men and women who live for this king, to honor him and the life he has given to us. And may we do so in ways that we are eager and willing to go all over to tell of his story, starting at places of where we work, to our neighbors, to our family, to our friends, to go even to the ends of the earth, so that we can tell those who have yet to trust in this king, King Jesus, the good news, that he is, was crucified, but he is risen, to tell us not to gloat over them, but to plead with them that they might turn and trust in Jesus, that they would believe that indeed God saves, that through Jesus God gives hope. Revelations Church, may we be filled with the hope of Jesus Christ and may that hope drive us and compel us to live for him always. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for King Jesus. And Lord, I do pray that you'd help us to joyfully bow the knee to him. Thank you that Jesus came and lived for us to live a life that we could never live. To die the death we deserve to die only to rise again. And Lord, I pray that you would fill us with hope this morning. That no matter how hopeless life might feel, that there's always hope in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.